Tonight, we're going to look at a fifth skill. But before I address that fifth skill, let me just, by way of reminder, bring us back up to speed on the last four skills. When it comes to opening your Bible and making sense of it, when it comes to obeying 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When it comes to obeying this key core text, I submit there are six key skills that if you can master these, and by the way, anybody can, you will be far and away on a fast track towards making sense of God's word. The first skill, as you may recall, is that you need to learn to see. And that means you need to learn to open your eyes and see what's already there. So many of us see, but don't really see. We are those who visually see things all the time, but don't pay close enough attention to even recognize what we're beholding. Just go home, and tomorrow morning as that sun mercifully rises just a little earlier in the morning, you go stare at that window at that little tree in your front yard that's hanging on for dear life before the cold temperatures take it away. And just observe the magnificent splendor of that little bush that you've taken for granted. You've seen every day, but you haven't really seen. So too in the Bible, there are immeasurable depths of riches there that we just gloss over. We just glance over. We don't see it. So first, slow down and use your brain to just observe What's already there? Write down on a piece of paper everything you don't understand or everything you see. It's an amazing tool. It seems ridiculous, I know. But if you just trust me and do it, I promise you it will begin to open up riches for you. Related is a second skill. You need to not only learn to see, you need to learn to read. You need to learn how to make sense of the way God has chosen to reveal himself. He could have revealed himself visibly for all time. He did in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but Jesus' incarnate state on the earth was a mere 33 years. He is now in bodily resurrected form, reigning in heaven until he comes again. And he has seen fit that we would not see him with our own two eyes in this age of the church. We would walk by faith and not by sight, seeing him revealed in written words, which demands that we learn how to read. And in that second week's lesson, if you missed it, you may want to go return to it. I spelled out some really basic skills. I know that sounds a little ridiculous. I trust we all know how to read, generally speaking. But there are some key skills on becoming a better reader so that you don't become like I am. And I think I'm not alone in this room where you read and you have no idea what you just read. You spend 20 minutes reading a book and you finish up. I couldn't tell you one thing I just read. We're all prone to this. So you need to learn to read. A third skill, one of the most critical skills in Bible study, is you need to learn the context. Because by way of reminder, context is king. If you read a text out of its context, I promise you, you're going to mess it up. There's an old adage that goes, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And the word proof text means I'm making that text say whatever I want it to say. If you just rip a Bible verse out of the Bible and read it and try to interpret it, you will get it wrong. You'll make it say whatever you want it to say. Like the old, y'all remember that illustration I used with the uh, magazine that had the picture of the Grand Teton Mountains with the Bible verse from Psalm, I think it was like 121, that said, look to the hills from whence comes my strength. And you're like, oh, that's inspirational. I, you know, when I look at the great outdoors, it fills me with energy and strength. And I just need to spend more time outdoors. That's obeying that verse. 
The problem is you ripped it right out of context because the very next phrase of that verse says, my strength comes from the Lord, not the mountains. That's not what the first meant. So you need to learn the context. Last week when I was away, we addressed that there's actually another context, not just the mere literary context, the words. You know, there's the context of a word and a sentence and a paragraph and a section, chapter, book, etc. There's also a, a context that you might call the historical context, the cultural context, the background. These books of the Bible were written by real people to real people, at a real time, in a real place, to real people, in a real place. They are, in other words, history. This isn't just literature like Shakespeare. This actually happened. So if you want to know what the author originally meant, you got to do all you can to understand what did that author mean when he wrote it some 2,000 years ago, and what can you learn about the audience that received it some 2,000 years ago. You need to learn the historical, cultural background to have any shot at making sense of what that text might have meant. But that leads us to our great project tonight, and that is this. I want you to see tonight that there is an additional skill you need to learn. There's an additional layer to this context that you must not forget. And before I tell you what it is, and I know you got notes, so it's not much of a cliffhanger, but before I tell you what it is, I want to ask God to help us and then set it up so you can understand and appreciate just how critical I believe this fifth skill is. Why don't you join me as we pray, and let's ask God to help me help you make sense of his word. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and that you would give me words of life, words that will edify, build up, strengthen the faith of these brothers and sisters, help them. I pray I wouldn't be unclear. I pray I would, in other words, be useful for the sake of your name and for the good of my dear brothers and sisters, gospel witness. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever find yourself... Missing the forest for the trees. You fixate on these little details and you miss the bigger picture. This is what happens so often in marriages. So many marriages come into my office on the rocks because some husband has fixated on some flaw in his wife. He's fixated on this little tree. And he's become so obsessed with something that he wishes he could fix about his wife that he starts thinking all she is, is that little flaw. And if only he could just take one step back and remember, there's a forest here. Stop looking at just the tree. If you get a wider picture, you get a bigger perspective, you're going to see that that is but one aspect of her totality. Do not judge her by that mere tree. She is more than this and it'll... Oh, I, you know what? She's actually not half bad. She puts up with me. She must not be half bad. You, you just need a little bit of perspective. Children oftentimes, time and again, miss the forest for the trees. This is why a child might scream out to their parent, You hate me! When the parent tells them they can't go to the mall at 9 p.m. Now, any child that would just take one step back and see the 
endless line of sacrifices and graces and kindnesses that any loving parent offers their child would know with just one second of taking a step back to look that this one act of telling you no is clearly not evidence that you hate me. It is in fact a loving act and I could only understand it to be a loving act if I see it in relationship to the wider force. My friends, we are prone as God's people to do this. We are prone to miss the tree, the forest, I should say, for the trees when it comes to reading the Bible. Do you realize that you can know the stories of the Bible and completely miss the story of the Bible? You can know Adam and Eve, Jonah and the whale, Moses and the burning bush, David and Goliath. You might even know how to spell Habakkuk. You know the four gospels and a lot of those miracles of Christ. You know some of the four horsemen and the trumpets and the bowls in the Revelation. You know stories of the Bible, but I wonder how many of you, rhetorically speaking, how many of you, if pressed by me, could you tell me the, the big story of the Bible? How many of you would be in a heaping herd of trouble? You'd realize, I'm in, I'm in a jam. I don't know quite how to do this. Have you forgotten that the Bible is not like a bunch of pearls on a string, a bunch of random stories just connected and together it's one beautiful picture? That's not true. The Bible is in truth one grand great story. And I'll admit it's quite easy for us to miss this because when you read the Bible, you encounter a few things. On the one hand, you find that there are 66 books. There's not 66 chapters. There's 66 books that often feel like they're disconnected. When it comes to chapters, the Bible has 1,189 of those. Well, that's a lot in and of itself. But it's got 66 books that's written by 39 to 40 different authors over a period of some 1,500 years. It doesn't really feel like a big story. It feels like just a bunch of different stories that are all cobbled together. But what I want you to see is that there actually is one great Narrative. Sometimes people use this technical word, meta-narrative. You don't need to know that. It's just another crazy way of saying big story of the Bible. Genesis all the way to the Revelation is bookends to one great, big, long story in the Bible that I don't want you to miss. Indeed, I want you to see that if you can learn this great story of the Bible, and hear me, dear church, you can if you can just get a basic grip on the great big story of the Bible, it will astonish you how much it's going to help you make sense of any given little story within the Bible. How many of you guys have ever seen a clip of a movie or a TV show, maybe on the internet or on the TV? It's like a trailer. You see just a little clip. It catches your attention. You're like, I want to know, I just saw, and it looks like he shot that guy, and she went running, and that girl was smiling, so was she a part of it, or I don't know, I want to know what all this means, and you, until you watch the whole thing, you actually don't have any idea, so you start guessing, 
and you make some stabs at it and you can come up with all kinds of crazy wild ideas on what that little clip could mean and you will not know until you take a step back and you finally watch the whole film or the whole episode of the show from start to finish and only then will you be like, got it, now I know what that means. Well, you know what's crazy though? So many of us read the story of David and Goliath. We do not read the whole story of the Bible, just the story of David and Goliath and we say, I got it. I know what David and Goliath means. I can tell you what that story means, and I'm going to illustrate for you later in my message tonight that most of us get even some simple story like David and Goliath wrong because we are reading it divorced from the big story of the Bible. In other words, the fifth skill that I want you, by God's grace, to grip tonight is that you need to learn the story of the Bible if you want to make sense of God's Word. First off, I want you to note with me what I mean by this story. Maybe some of you are wondering, Kyler, is this actually true? A few things I want you to note. Note with me first that the Bible really does have one author. The fact that it has one ultimate author, the Holy Spirit of God, who inspired all 66 books, should tell us, okay, it's not merely written by 39 to 40 different human authors. There is one ultimate author that took care of this whole thing, so that should tell me, you know what, that author, he's not half dumb. He knows what he's doing. So he who helped inspire Genesis and the same guy who helped inspire Hosea, and that same guy who helped inspire Revelation, of course, the guy of which I speak is God Almighty, the Holy Spirit of God, he's not going to contradict himself. He knows what he's doing. He's actually weaving a great narrative for us. So I need to figure out what is this single author's big story he's revealing to me. You also need to remember that the Bible actually has one ultimate purpose. That shouldn't surprise us if it has one ultimate author. If there is one author who has taken care of this Bible, we shouldn't be surprised that this one author has one main goal. Now I wonder, what do you think is the one main goal of the Bible? A lot of people have taken some stabs at this. There's books upon books upon books written about what is the big theme of the Bible? What would we say is that big purpose to it? And I'm going to cheat tonight. I'm going to punt and let Jesus answer this question because Jesus actually takes a stab. And you know what? Jesus' stab at it is better than anybody else's. Jesus, in Luke 24 and verse 27, actually tells us the whole major purpose of the Bible. Jesus, upon his resurrection, he was visibly, physically on the earth and revealing himself to different disciples. And in Luke 24, it says in a somewhat odd incognito way, Jesus revealed himself in resurrected form to these two disciples. One was named Cleopas and one was unnamed on the way to this little village called Emmaus. And on this journey to Emmaus, these guys are kind of all bent out of shape because they're wondering if the promises of the Bible are true because Jesus is dead and they didn't know he was resurrected or they'd heard but they didn't know where he was. And Jesus does something the world has never seen. He takes out the Bible, which at that time was the Old Testament. And in verse 27 of Luke 24, it says, He began to show the disciples how every part of the Old Testament, the Bible, pointed to Him, to Jesus. He began to show them that the Old Testament actually 
prophesied that Jesus was going to be the great fulfillment of all those prophecies. And it says those men's eyes were open. And since that day and time, his teaching has reverberated throughout the uh, ages. And we now realize that the one great purpose of the Bible is that Jesus is the center of it all. He's the reason for not merely the season. He is the reason for the Bible. The Bible starts with him by promising in Genesis that he would come and it ends with him, with Jesus reigning as the lamb who gets all praise, glory, and honor to whom we will sing holy, holy, holy forevermore. Jesus is the one great purpose of the Bible. So it's got one author. It's got one purpose. You also ought to conclude that it has one context. If you think that, if you want to know what a word means, you know, remember me using that illustration, that's a big trunk, and you have no way to know what I mean by that unless I give you context, because it could mean an elephant trunk or a trunk of a tree or the trunk of a car. You don't know unless you got some context. Words need the context of sentences. Sentences need the context of paragraphs. Paragraphs need the context of like a section or maybe a chapter. Chapters need the context of the book. The book might need the context of the whole Testament, but did you know there actually is one greatest and final context? And that's the whole Bible itself. The whole Bible, the whole story of the Bible really is one big giant context that if you know the whole story, it'll help you make sense of any given passage you're struggling through. And so I wonder, do you fourthly know this one great storyline of the Bible? Do you know it? What I want to do tonight, I have no notes on this. There's nothing on my podium that's telling me what to say here. I want to illustrate for you guys how I have this hidden in my heart and you can too. I didn't rehearse this in a way. I'm like, I got to impress them and make sure that they know that their pastor knows the story. I've known this since I was a teenager. And the truth is, I think you guys can do this. Most of you have a favorite TV show, sitcom, maybe it's a movie. And the truth is, you know the storyline. You could probably rehearse it to me in more detail than you care to confess because you know it that well. You know it. You tend to retain those things you really enjoy, those things that bring you a lot of joy, those things you care about. It's not hard to do. I want you to see that you can actually develop this with the Bible and you can convey just off the top of your head the great grand story. And what I want to do tonight is just by my own memory, cast a, a broad brush uh, portrait of the great story of the Bible. It'll be a little bit more detailed than perhaps you might ever do, but I want you to see just from me orally that the Bible actually does have one great story. It's not a bunch of pearls on a necklace. It is one grand story that you need to know. And of course, that story begins where? It begins with the fact that in the beginning, God, subject, verb, created. There was a God who has always existed. He finally spoke and everything else we know came into being. God, who has always existed, created everything. And Genesis tells us he created everything we know, including you and me. We are the pinnacle of his creation. We are the only thing that he described as very good. And the reason why we are very good is because unlike all the caterpillars and kitty cats in your house, we are made, the Bible says, in the image of God, which is another way of saying we have the unique capacity to relate to him, to worship him. We were made for a relationship with him. And the scripture teaches that he put us in heaven on earth. 
The Garden of Eden was indeed a true heaven on earth. And he said, you may eat of all the trees of the garden save one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day upon which you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. God was demonstrating in that moment his holiness, who he is and who we are. Satan, that crafty serpent, that fallen angel that is relatively enigmatic. The Bible doesn't give us as much detail as I wish it did on his origin. Satan came in the form of a serpent. He deceived Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve bought the lie and everything from that point forward fell apart. Just three chapters in, paradise on earth was lost. That's where John Milton got that famous title to his famous book, Paradise Lost. Everything fell apart from that point forward. The world fell, the Bible says, into sin. And God could have in that moment kept his word and said the wage of sin, the punishment for sin is death. And he could have, ooh, that was really loud, y'all. He could have just taken them all out. That was real loud. Sorry, y'all. He kind of like scared me. He could have taken them all out at that point and have been a good, holy, and just God. But it's astoundingly, in Genesis 3, it says, that God, instead of just justly condemning his creation that's rebelled against him, he makes this promise he didn't have to. First off, he rightly curses them. There is a sin nature that now infects the world. But in Genesis 3 and verse 15, the first time the gospel is ever uttered, he makes this precious promise that one day he's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. One day he's going to send a savior to make right all that has been made wrong. One day he will save us from our sins. But until that day comes, we need help. And so he slays an animal. It says there is an animal that's probably the first time any creature died. They are clothed with the, the skins of that animal. The first time the blood of an animal was drunk into the ground, we presume. And from that day forward, they began to practice sacrifices. We know that because Abel was one who made sacrifices, unlike Cain, who brought vegetables. Well, the rest of the Bible story is actually one great story of trying to figure out who's the one who's going to save us. Who's going to fulfill God's promise in Genesis 3.15? Who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent? Maybe it'll be Cain and Abel. It's not Cain because he killed his brother Abel. Abel's now dead. Cain is a fugitive. He gets kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Maybe it's their third son, Seth. It's not Seth. It's not Seth's family. In fact, all of Seth's kids get so wicked that at last, in just six chapters in, in Genesis 6, God decides to wipe his hands clean and say, I'm killing everybody on this earth except for Noah and his family. He's the only one that worships me. God saves Noah and his family in that ark. After flooding the earth, he gives a command to Noah. Go fill the entire world with people who know me and love me and worship me. I want you to go out to all the earth and fill it with worshipers. But Noah and his family disobey. Instead of spreading out, they do what's right in their own eyes. And they all come together on this nice, beautiful, flat piece of land called the Plain of Shinar. And there they build a tower that reaches to the heavens. A lot of scholars assume that the reason they built that tower was not merely to make a name for themselves, but presumably because they thought if God ever floods the earth again, we'll climb up this tower and we'll be higher than the waters and we can escape this judgment. We're going to do God better. And God decides in his infinite wisdom, you're not going to obey me? Okay, I'm going to make you obey me. And he does so by confusing their languages from whence we get the name Babel. It was as if they were babbling, muttering. They couldn't understand each other's languages, forced to spread out over all the known earth. And now he's got all these people that don't understand each other spread out over all the world. And now God has a decision to make. How am I going to keep my promise 
to send someone to save us. And so he does what you'd never expect. He unconditionally chooses somebody. He just finds one guy, the guy you'd least expect. He finds this weird idolater, this idol maker in the town of Ur of Chaldees, a man named Abram. And he calls Abram in Genesis 6 and says, Abram, you sorry son, you are going to be the one I use to keep my promise. I'm going to bless the entire world through your family, Abram. And the rest of the Old Testament is basically one big story about Abram's family. Do you all know who Abram's family is? We know them to this day. Abram's family became the people of Israel. Abraham has a son named Isaac and uh, Ishmael. Neither of those guys are the ones God uses. Isaac has a son named Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau aren't the ones God uses to save the world. Jacob has a whole lot of sons, 12 of which, the most famous of which was a man named Joseph. Joseph isn't the one God uses to save, although he kind of looks like it, because Joseph ends up getting sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. All his brothers back up in the promised land, they get hungry, they go down to Egypt, they stay a while, they get comfortable because it's pretty nice down there when your brother's second in command, and over a series a period of 400 years, those people of Israel become slaves in Egypt because the new leaders were threatened by them. And then we all know that famed story of the people of Israel in bondage in Egypt. God sends a deliverer named Moses. Moses tells the Pharaoh to let God's people go. God, uh, Pharaoh says no. God sends the 10 plagues. They at last leave and they're headed back to that land that God had promised uh, Abraham so many years ago, the promised land, what we know today as the region of Israel or Palestine. They start making their way back up, but they have a lot of obstacles. They've got the Red Sea. They've got to figure out how to get across. God does it for them. They end up wandering around in the wilderness because they were grumbling because they didn't have the watermelon and the cucumber, which I think is disgusting. Why would you want a cucumber? That's why God punished them, I think. They ended up having to wander around in that wilderness for 40 years till at last God gets them out of the wilderness and says, ta-da, you're in the promised land, cross that Jordan River, you're there except crud. When you get into uh, the promised land, the first obstacle they got is the mighty city of Jericho that doesn't want them there. They march around those walls, those walls come a tumbling down, they end up driving out all the people of Israel out of the land because they were all by the way, wicked, wicked idolaters. The Canaanite people was a whole new level of wicked idolatry. They would make the darkest back alley of New Orleans or the darkest street of San Francisco look like nothing. This was some evil people there. And God tells them to drive them out, but they kind of do. You ever done that in your life where you, you weed out most of the sin, but you keep that little pet one real close? That's what the people of Israel did. They drove out most of the Canaanites, but they kept some of them, and they ended up becoming just like the Canaanites, worshiping the false gods. So God said, I'm going to send you some people to help you obey me. First, he sends them the judges. The judges don't really work. Then he sends them a king because the people start throwing a hissy fit. We want to look like everybody else. We want to have a king. And God says, well, I'm supposed to be your king, but you know what? I'll give you what you want. And so they give, they're given the king they wanted. And what kind of king do you think they wanted? They wanted the one that Americans want. They're one of the ones that most people want. The guy that was tall, strong, broad, natural leader, head and shoulders above everybody else. The guy that you look at and you say, that's a leader. And his name was Saul. 
But the scripture teaches that Saul was not a a guy after God's own heart. God ends up rejecting Saul as king and says, I'm going to give you one after my own heart, the one you would not expect, the runt of the litter, King David. King David is not a perfect man. In fact, he does despicable things. He kills a man because he slept and impregnated the man's wife. Not a good dude, but he, oh, this is great news for sinners. David sincerely with great contrition repented of his sin and God counted his repentance as indicative of a man whose heart was after him. And praise God that he looks upon repentant hearts, not perfect hearts. It is good news for you and me today. And then he raises up David's son, Solomon, who becomes the third king. But then Solomon, who it's always been odd to me, he was the wisest guy ever, and yet he had 300 wives and some eight to 900 concubines. Not exactly wise over here either. I mean, so Solomon ends up getting the kingdom ripped apart from him, and the kingdom gets split into two, in the north and in the south. The north kept the name Israel. The south got a new name, Judah. And the rest of the Old Testament, all the prophets of the New Testament are basically one man or another sent to these two kingdoms saying, repent and believe. I'm going to send somebody to save you. So you see prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all these men in one accord, not to mention Elisha and Elijah who don't get books named after them. They all come and say, turn from your sins and believe God's promises. They don't really do it though. They kind of do it, but not really. They end up getting kicked out of the land. God sends the mighty nation of Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom in 722. He sends the uh, people of Babylon to come and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah in 586. And now all of God's people that are dispersed over the world and in exile in Babylon are wondering, is God going to keep his promise? And of course he does. He sends them back to the land, but then something crazy happens. He stops talking to him. And after he sends Malachi, it's like he shuts up. He stops talking, and now the people are wondering what's happening. He's not talking to us anymore. So they start to devise their own stuff because God's not talking. It was during this 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew that you see the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees arise. You see the synagogue develop. You see all the things that Jesus would experience develop in this time when God didn't talk until at last there was a voice that pierces the silence. It's a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It was John the Baptist appointed by God to be the forerunner of Christ. He says, prepare, there is the promised one who is to come. And of course, that promised one is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born of a virgin. He came though from the line of King David. Jesus ends up fulfilling All the things the Old Testament had foreshadowed, this is the guy that is to come. Jesus fulfills them. But as you know all too well, he's rejected by the people of God, the people of Israel. They say, you are not who you say you are. You're a liar or you're a lunatic. They refuse to call him Lord. And so they crucify him because they're threatened by his persuasive power within the people of Israel. They kill him on a a murderer's cross, the Roman cross. He is crucified and he shocks the world when upon that cross, he cries out two things that have reverberated to this very day. He first cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which a lot of people are sitting there thinking, this is weird. Why does he say this? And then it gets weirder. In fact, this is where I trust they started to have shivers go down their bones because his final breath, he cries out, Tetelestai, it 
is finished. And he bows his head. He breathes his last. He yields his spirit. And then it says that an earthquake breaks out. The, temp, the curtain of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. There were uh, graves being opened up. All these crazy miraculous signs demonstrating that something just happened that never happens when a mere man dies. For this was not indeed a mere man. This was the God-man. Our God and Father, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had died. But he didn't stay dead. For if he had, he would be but a footnote in the trash heap of history. But three days later, he resurrected from the dead. And the rest of the New Testament is one great story illustrating why that means something for you and for me. He rose from the dead. He revealed himself to some 500 people. He ascended to the Father. But before he ascended, he said a couple things. First off, he said, go and make disciples. Spend the next period of history letting people know who I am and I am going to come back one day and I am going to bring my kingdom here and I'm going to recreate the Garden of Eden on earth. I am going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And praise God, he gives us a little bit more detail when his final apostle, the Apostle John, the last one to die, is given a revelation on the Isle of Patmos, the final word we have from our Lord where he gives us this glimpse of what is to come. There is going to be a time, and Lord willing, it will come soon, when he will finally wipe away every tear from our eye. He will make right everything that's wrong. He will at last fix all that our politics are so desperately trying to fix. He is going to create heaven and on earth, on earth, and we will at last enjoy that which we were made to enjoy. We will go full circle. We will finally taste anew what Adam and Eve tasted of old. We will see him face to face. And until that day comes, all of God's people will cry with the 22nd chapter of Revelation, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you guys see that that is the story of the Bible? Y'all didn't need to clap for that. I didn't mean it as a performance, but it's the story. Now, I don't expect you tomorrow to be able to, oh, you know what, Kyler, I can do that. I, I know it'll take you some time, but I hope you see that I'm not just saying it's a story and then I'm umming and un my way through it trying to, uh, I think it's a story. It's a story. I could tell that story to my five-year-old daughter. It is a story. And so what I want you to see is you need to figure out how to internalize the story. You may do so in broader brushstrokes, but if you can internalize that this is one great big story, you're going to see a few reasons why this is going to help you dramatically. Let me give you three reasons why you really need to get the story down very briefly it's going to help you, it's going to help show you what you're missing in the Bible. The truth of the matter is, when you're reading the Bible, you can easily miss things when you just read it like little random stories instead of one great, big, broad story. So, for example, how many times have I heard a preacher or a Sunday school teacher try to tell me that the story of Daniel and the lion's den is a story about courage? It's not. That might be an implication of the story, but the point of that story is not be like Daniel. It's really not. 
The story of Daniel and the lion's den, if you take just one step back, you'll see that it is actually a beautiful illustration of how God is rescuing his people. God is keeping his promise. Even when you think there's no way he can, he is keeping his promise to save his people. He even saved Daniel from the mightiest man living in history at that time, King Darius. And he saved him from the mightiest animal known to mankind at that time, the mighty lion. God was keeping his promise. Daniel is not the hero. God is. You, you'll miss this if you read a story divorced from the big story. It'll help show you what you're missing. It'll also help you see what you might be misunderstanding. For example, how many of you guys have ever read the story of Hosea? If you're familiar with Hosea, God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute, which is a weird story. And you're thinking, well, I don't know what to do with this. Is he saying it's okay to do that? I, like, what do I do? And I've heard some people try to rationalize that that's why all that's okay, because he told a prophet to do it, so why can't we? But the truth is, if you just take one step back, you'll realize the only reason he told Hosea to do this was to make it a, an amazing prophetic image that has lasted through the ages, that God is faithful to we and adulterous people the way Hosea was faithful to an adulterous wife. He was illustrating for the people of Israel, I'm faithful to you even when you're not faithful to me. This helps you make sense of God telling the people of Israel to, con to conquer the Canaanites. A lot of college students upon studying the Bible get tripped up here and they think of this as a Canaanite genocide. And they think, how is this any better than Hamas? If Hamas is doing that to the people of Israel today, how was Israel allowed to go slaughter all these people of ancient uh, Canaan of old? You have to take a step back and recognize what God is doing. These people had become such a grossly wicked people and God was proving in that time in the big story of the Bible that he was going to drive out these satanic folks of sorts and he was going to preserve his promised land despite all of Satan's best efforts. To the contrary, if you divorce it from the big story, you're going to have trouble making sense of some of the tougher stories within the Bible or even the sacrificial laws. Any of you ever read Leviticus and think, well, well my word, I guess I need to go slaughter a lamb. Why, haven't, why don't I have a little altar at the house? If you read Leviticus, divorced from the big story, you'll get grossed out. I always love it in my devotional reading, which always involves a cup of coffee every year. I make my way to Leviticus. I think it's like chapter 14, and it talks about all these bodily uh, fluids and cuts and ugh, and you're sitting there thinking, oh my word, I can't drink another cup. Why is this in the Bible? Until you step back and realize Leviticus is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's holiness and his demand that there be an amazing sacrifice that must be made for the cost, the infinite cost of sin, which would only be fulfilled perfectly and finally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful image that you'll miss you won't understand if you don't read it in light of the big story. Thirdly and finally, I want you to note with me that knowing the story is going to help you, see, help you see what you may have been misapplying. Okay, I'm about to step on some toes, but remember, I'm stepping on my own too. All of us have this uncanny tendency to read the Bible and think it's all about the big number one, me. You ever do that? You read the Bible and you're like, what does this have to say to me? I see myself here. I need to be more like Daniel. I need to be more like David, Noah. Or you know what? Thank God I'm not like that guy. 
I am not like Bathsheba. Thank you, Lord. The truth is the Bible is actually not about you. And if you read the Bible in light of the big story, you'll remember what is the big story about? Who's the main character? What does every story and every page of the Bible point to? It's one great purpose is Christ. And so when you read the Bible in light of the big story, you'll start reading the Bible in a Christ-centered way instead of in a me-centered way. Do you remember me using the word exegesis a couple weeks ago? It's a technical word that means getting out of the Bible what it says. It's studying the Bible to figure out what it means. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't practice exegesis. We practice what you might tongue-in-cheek call narcissus. <laughs> we read into it whatever we narcissistically think it means about us. And so you read it in light of the big story, it'll help you remember, you know what? This isn't about me. And that's a good thing. It's about Jesus, who is my only hope. Three reasons why we need to learn it. But let's conclude our study tonight by answering the big question that I know is on all of your hearts and minds. And that's, all right, preacher, how do I do this? You know, the truth is, that was a cool little uh, story you told. But tomorrow morning, this video is not going to be posted on YouTube yet, so I'm not going to be able to find it. I'm not going to remember what you said. I don't know this story. How can I figure out this story for myself? How can I learn the story to help make sense of the Bible? I want to give you some uh, basic skills to figure out how do I start to internalize the story. And I want to use the analogy of watching a TV show. How many of you guys like watching TV shows, like series TV shows? My wife and I love it. We prefer TV shows to uh, movies. Well, actually, my wife does, and if you learned in marriage, whatever my wife likes, I end up having to like by covenant commitment, okay? She likes a TV show. And so we watch them. And you'll know with any TV show you probably have enjoyed, whether it's Andy Griffith or Everybody Loves Raymond or even Seinfeld, basically there's one big, giant story, typically. You could start with the first episode and go all the way to the last one, and there's one big arc some big giant story the show told. Seinfeld, you might have trouble figuring out what it is because it's a show about nothing. But most shows usually have some big story. Things develop over time. And do you guys know that the Bible's the same way? In the same way that uh, there's one big plot in the Bible, in, the, in a show, there's one big plot in the Bible. And I want to give you a very simple way to remember this plot. I want to first give you a super simple way, and then I'm going to give you a second way that's Pretty simple too, but a little bit more. The first one is you could summarize the plot of the Bible in two little statements. Promises made, that's the Old Testament. Promises kept, that's the New Testament. And every time you're reading any story in the Old Testament, you need to realize that story is somehow, some way conveying a promise God has made. And when you go to the New Testament, you're going to see how that promise was fulfilled, how it was kept in Christ. But that is admittedly simplistic. Most people tend to summarize the plot of the Bible with four words. If you're taking notes, write these four words down. You will see this in most books on the subject. Those four words that might summarize the plot of the Bible are creation. The story begins with God creating the world. The second word would be fall. Everything that was created good in this world falls apart. Sin enters the world. It gets all messed up. Creation, fall. Praise God, the next word is redemption. God promises he's going to come and make right everything that's been made wrong because of man. He's going to redeem the world. Creation, fall, redemption. We're living in that 
season right now, the season of redemption. But there is coming a day. Here's the word we use the least amount, but it's a good word to know. The fourth word is consummation. That is, in other words, when he's going to bring heaven back on earth. He's going to come again, his second coming, and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. That's a good way to think about the big story of the Bible. So when you're reading a story, by the way, most stories in the Bible, pretty much Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation, basically happen in the subject called redemption. Which, guess what? That makes sense, because what's the big point of the Bible? What's the purpose of the Bible? Jesus who alone redeems us. It's the whole story of the Bible is one big story of redemption. God made us, we fell, praise God, he's redeeming us, and one day he's finally going to keep his promise fully and make right everything that's been made wrong. That's one way to look at the plot. Now, most of you, though, do not just go on Google, look up the plot of your favorite TV show, like, for example, growing up, anybody ever watched the 1990s sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond? I watched that a lot as a kid for whatever reason. Maybe it gave me, it was strangely a lot like my family. And I was watching that show, and I, didn't, I never went on the internet, which I guess there wasn't much internet access in the mid-90s when it started, and pulled up the, the plot. And I was like, you know what? I just read the whole plot. That was good enough for me. That's not enjoyable. Nobody would do that. You actually want to watch the show. You're going to watch a whole season. Most TV shows consist of seasons. Seasons typically have one big theme. Usually a season builds up to a climax and then it leaves you with a cliffhanger. It resolves a lot, gives you a cliffhanger and makes you want to come back for the next season to see what's going to happen next. The Bible does that too. The Bible has big themes throughout it that you'll see time and again that you need to think about. Have you guys noticed that the Bible talks again and again and again and again in different books about covenant? That's a theme of the Bible. Or have you noticed the Bible repeatedly talks about a temple? Time and again, it keeps using this language of a temple. That's a big theme of the Bible. Or even the concept of judgment you find in almost every book of the Bible or blood. That's a theme of the Bible. There's all these various themes that you need to think about. You could kind of think of them as like a season of the Bible. When you, when you look at it closely, you're going to notice, you know what, the Bible has a lot to say on this subject. That must be important. I must need to really think, what does that theme have to say to me. God must really care about the temple. He must really care about blood. He must really care about a covenant. You need to think about those uh, themes. Here's an illustration. Uh, one of the reasons why you need to think about the plot and you need to think about the theme is because if you don't, you're going to screw the story up probably. Let's take David and Goliath. Most people know David and Goliath. But I'm ashamed to tell you that I have heard several preachers preach that story and totally screw it up. For example, I don't even want to ask you because I hope you've never heard a sermon like this, but I've heard preachers say, preaching the story of David and Goliath, you can fight the giants in your life too. Who are the five smooths or what are the five smooth stones in your life that you can put in your satchel and conquer the giants in your life? Take that sword and cut off the head of the giant in your life. You, with God's help, you can do this. Now that sounds nice. Sounds great. Except that is not the point of the story at all. 
The whole point of the story is David is doing something utterly impossible so that the whole world will know there is a God in Israel who is going to keep his promise and is going to destroy, judge his enemies, including the Philistines, Goliath of Gath, and he is going to keep his promise to his chosen people, the people of Israel. That's the point of the story. And you won't know it unless you remember that the story of David and Goliath happens in the broader context of a story that's developing, showing us that God is keeping his promise to one day send somebody to save us. David looks like he might be that person. He ends up not ultimately being it, but he sure looks like it. He's foreshadowing Jesus who is to come. You need to know the story, the plot. You need to know the themes, the episodes. That theme of judgment rings in there. But you also need to now get down to what you might call the... uh, the episodes. Y'all like an episode, right? I mean, that's what you watch. You either watch it when it airs live on TV, or if you're watching Netflix, when the episode ends, that's a good time to take a bathroom break and then jump back into your Netflix binge that you're ashamed to admit how long it goes. As you're watching this episode, typically an episode is one cohesive story. It usually has a beginning and an end. It allows you to go to bed after it's done. And the Bible kind of has this too. You could call it like chapters of the Bible, and not literally a chapter, but like sections of the Bible that are telling stories. So, for example, any given story you read in the Bible, where does it fit in the broader story? Is it in that story of God creating the world? Or is it in that story of when God's people fell and got kicked out of Eden? Or is it in that big old story where God's people are filling the world and then he floods it? Or when God's people are at the Tower of Babel? Or when God's people are being uh, spread out over all the known world? Or when the people of Israel are gathering in the Promised Land? Or when they're down in Egypt? Or when they're walking through the wilderness? Or when they come into the conquer the new land? You need to know what episode does this story fall in so that you can make sense of what's happening in the big story. You'll only understand the story if you know kind of the episode, what's actually happening in the Bible right now. What I basically did 10 minutes ago was I just walked you through all the episodes of the Bible, so to speak. I was giving you highlights. By the way, I probably took, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes to do that. I'm not sure. I could come up here and bore you all to death and do that for an hour because I've done it enough now over my years and years of reading the Bible again and again, that I know lots of details of the stories of the Bible. So I can like start really spinning a tale for you all and make you guys positively fall over on your face and the table asleep. It's because you just start to learn and learn and learn more and more of the episodes of the Bible. You actually start getting down to the very scenes of the Bible where you now know how almost every story of the Bible fits together. You know the varied scenes, like you might know the varied scenes of your favorite TV show or of your favorite movie. I want you guys to see that your favorite movie, that you can probably rehearse a lot of the lines to, to me. Your favorite TV show, that you know most of the characters and you know the great story. That same knowledge that you have can be applied to the Bible if you start learning the story from start to finish. If you start internalizing it, it's amazing what it will help you understand. Have you guys ever found it to be true that the first time through a movie, you miss a lot? And then once it's over, all of a sudden everything makes sense and you're like, oh, that's what that meant. And then you go back and watch it again, and you're like, I didn't see that. I missed that. Wow, that's amazing. You watch it a third time, and you start picking up more things. That's what's going to happen in the Bible. As you start learning the story, you're going to start realizing all these things in these varied little scenes, these little stories of the Bible that you had missed prior. It'll be an amazing gift to you. 
Now, before we pray and call it a night, I want to commend some resources to you that I think will help you do this. Because I grant that probably most of you in this room are still thinking, Preacher, how am I going to learn this? I'm not going to remember what you said. Is there any good resource out there that can help me start kind of making sense of this big story of the Bible? I have a list of resources out here, and I want to commend two of them to you, and it's going to be the two you least expect. The first, I don't know, five or six resources, whatever it is on my sheet, those are all adult resources. Those are like good resources that it can be a little bit of deep waters to wade through, but they're helpful. So if you like to build a library, go buy one of those. But here are the two resources I want to encourage every last one of you to buy. I want you guys to go buy what's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a kid's Bible. And you're thinking, what? That's for my grandkids, not for me. And I want to tell you guys, I read this Bible every night to my little daughter. And that book ministers to me as much as it does to she. Because the Jesus Storybook Bible, and there are others, for example, The Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung, who's actually a pastor in Charlotte. That is another book similar to that. It's a kid's book that retells the stories of the Bible. They are tremendous resources because what they'll do is they will highlight in simple language the major stories of the Bible. And if you start reading through them again and again, you're going to actually start discovering how the story fits together. You want to know how I became familiar with the story of the Bible? It was not through reading the Bible. It was through reading my kid's storybook Bible as a kid and then finding all those stories that I was reading about in the Bible and being like, oh, wow, that's where that was. Oh, that's cool. I remember seeing, I, I still to this day, this is embarrassing. Here's your preacher that preaches every week and has four degrees in the Bible. To this day, when I read stories in the Bible, I picture in my mind's eye my little kid's Bible that I still have on my bookshelf at home. I read the story of Jeremiah getting thrown down into that cistern in Jeremiah like 29, and I picture that old 1980s picture that was painted in my little kid's storybook Bible. Friends, get one of these. Do you know that a lot of college ministries around the country are using kids' storybook Bibles to help disciple college students? Because it's a tremendous resource. It actually, if you can get past the kiddie drawings, the story itself is amazing because it summarizes in simple language that great big story. Go get one, and you know when your wife comes in, be sure you have your big Bible out and like, hey, honey, I'm, I'm reading this. And then when she walks out of the room, turn it over and pull out that kid's Bible and read it. No shame, everybody. It's a good resource. I want to encourage you to do it. It will actually help you make sense of the story. And here's why that's so important. When you get it, when you get that story down deep in your heart, you will finally recognize how prone you are. Oh, how prone I am to miss the story of the Bible for the stories of the Bible. Oh, don't do that. You can not only know the stories, but the story if you put your mind to fifth skill. Learn the story. And for only then will you begin to see the widest context of the Bible that one great context by that one great author with that one great purpose that we might see the person and work of our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, my Lord and yours. Why don't you join me as we pray and we'll call it a night and we'll come back one sixth and final week to conclude our study together. Why don't you join me as we pray. Father in heaven, I praise you for these dear brothers and sisters and I pray that you would grant them the resolve 
to become a student of the big story of the Bible. I pray you'd encourage them. I pray they'd find it strength, uh, faith strengthening and eye-opening. I pray it would invigorate them. It would give them a renewed sense of joy as they read the Bible. I trust there are many who can hear my voice tonight who would privately admit that the Bible It's boring to them at times. It feels like drudgery. It doesn't make sense. And I really think, Lord, that this is that skill that if by your grace you can seal it to their soul and they'll they'll grasp it, they'll get it. If they get it, Lord, I think it'll open their eyes to find riches in the Bible. It will make the Bible taste like honey to their mouth, to their tongue. So I pray that you would do this for the glory of your name, the good of their families, the good of their gospel witness, and the good of the witness of our church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.